Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. We are an ACC church based on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. We'd love for you to join us on any given Sunday. In the meantime, we hope this message blesses you. Thank you, worship team. You did a great job. Thanks for preparing and doing all you have to do uh, to do that. It's so good to be with you. My job tonight is over the Bible, right? I tell you that very seriously. So if you're the type that likes to follow an actual Bible, Ezekiel 18. If not, we've created these really easy to follow along slides uh, that we can, um, we can follow along um, together. Um, anytime you open the Bible, you want to ask a couple questions. One, what happened? Two, more importantly, what's happening in us all right now because of what happened. So um, afterwards, um, on your way out, we have a resource table set up there at the back uh, with just the new stuff from the last couple years. You can find stuff on the book of Revelation. Uh, During the COVID lockdowns, pastors from everywhere were having me into their online platforms because dialogues play better than monologues. And so I ended up being interviewed for over 12 hours um, by really smart people. And um, and so we had an editor sort of um, copy and paste and cut and edit it down to where it was by topic. And I think there's probably over... I had 10 hours worth of different stuff where I'm being interviewed over big things. And so you can pick those things up back there. I just finished a Christology course as well. Um, so you can, all that's available back there. The reason is, is because that's the way we support our missions in the world. So 100% of the profit we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have three homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. And we have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls um, out of the sex industry, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we could do our part of breaking the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. That's where that goes. So if you come back there and say hello, everything's on USB. The only thing I would ask is that if you know you're not going to get any anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time uh, I'm through. If you know before I leave tonight, I'm going to grab something. If you could do me a favor and do that first. Uh, the reason is, is that um, Robin's been here all day. I'm, I'm paid to be here, but um, Robin is here out of the goodness of her heart. And the fulfillment of scripture is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so I don't want her having to stay for an hour when it could be done in 15 minutes, right? So is that fair? So, so here's the order of things afterwards. If you could like buy first and chat second, that would be awesome, right? Uh, and the reason is, is, you know, there's an hour drive back and I've got to pack it all up and go to Cairns tomorrow. So, uh, so it's the, we, get, we get to go to our next place. So if you could uh, do that, that would, be, that would be great. All right, so Ezekiel chapter 18. Now before we get into the scripture, um, we have to understand that words matter less than how we picture words functioning. And so there's a way to say something that's true, but it can create a not true image. And that not true image, it creates a, a, a real problem. And so anytime you're reading something that's almost 3,000 years old, you run the risk of the guy who wrote it using language that it, it didn't mean back then what it means now. And, and so um, if you've been walking with God for a while, I'm not really worried about you, but um, if you're here tonight and you're like on the fence or this is your first time and you came with a friend or, or you came just because there's a pretty girl here or whatever, like, and I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to um, scare you to death by reading a 3,000-year-old prophet's words and worry that you might apply it in a way that was never intended in that day. So you're, we're gonna, he's going to say some really terrifying things that sound terrifying, but they're not as terrifying. It's actually just a challenge. So, so, so let me just show you a couple pieces of language that you're going to hear before we read it. All right, so if you could bring that first slide up for me, please. So the first one is light, life, and increase. In, in an ancient prophetic world, the words light and life had nothing to do with where we go when we die. 
It had to do with living in the light here, choosing life here. The reason I bring that up is because if you immediately apply, apply life to heaven and death to hell, um, there's a case to be made for that later, but not with Ezekiel. The, the Ezekiel, those concepts weren't around. And so when Ezekiel, he's an ancient prophet, and he's going to say things like, choose life, choose to be in the light. Those are about a realm today that is living in God's ways. And conversely, next slide, the words death, darkness, or decrease are descriptions of a way of life that leads to disrepair and an unraveling of completion. It doesn't have anything to do with literal death. So a couple times in this passage, he's going to say, if you sin, you're dead, right? And it's like, oh my goodness. Like every time I make a mistake, I could die? No, no. He's, he's talking about choosing to live outside of a way that lives in peace. And the, and the word they used for that commonly was death or life. Life was the opposite of death. So life was choosing to live in God's ways. Death was the opposite of life. It was choosing to live outside of God's ways. Now, with that as the setup, let me take about, I don't know, 20 minutes and explain what happened. And then we're going to see where he takes us to, what are we going to do about that? This is Ezekiel chapter 18. He's writing to a group of slaves in Babylon, and he's trying to encourage them uh, by sort of really, really being hard on him at first. Here's what he says. Um, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The father eats sour grapes and now the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The father eats sour grapes and now the children's teeth are set on edge. I don't want to hear that come out of your mouth one more time. Which leads to two questions. One, what does that proverb even mean? Normally, if I eat something sour, it's my teeth that are set on edge. Not this proverb. This proverb says, the father eats sour grapes, and now it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. I don't want to hear that out of your mouth ever again. So a couple of questions. One, what does this even mean? And two, why is God so apparently ticked off about it? So let's talk about this for quite a bit of time here, all right? So first... To understand this, we have to understand a brief history of Israel, okay? So strap in, take a deep breath. Here is the entire Old Testament and the history of Israel in two minutes. Ready? You have to pay very close attention. Here we go. There was a guy named Abraham and a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 children. And 11 of those 12 children sold one of their brothers into slavery in Egypt, only to later need him to save their sorry behinds from a famine that hit the family because they sold him in a place where now he is in charge of the food supply. And instead of killing them, he forgives them and gives them a piece of land in Egypt. And so this family now settles in Egypt. And then they started having babies. And boy, did they have babies. And I mean babies upon babies upon babies upon babies and babies and babies and babies. And there was more babies and babies and babies and babies and babies until they started overpopulating Egypt, which panicked the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh did the only reasonable thing he knew to do with this group of people who are overpopulating Egypt, he put them into slavery. 430 years later, a guy named Moses shows up, anointed by God to get them out of slavery and into freedom. He gets them out of slavery and into freedom by walking through the Red Sea, and he gets given a mandate by God to create a country that will show the whole world what God looks like by maintaining justice and righteousness to the poor. This in turn, this, this in short turns out terrible. By, this, by the third king, a guy named Solomon, it says that Solomon was forcing slaves to build the temple of God. So if you're paying 
paying attention, a guy that comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the God who frees the slaves. And he's failing to see the irony in that. So they end up back in slavery in a place called Babylon. And who do they blame for their slavery? They blame Solomon. So much so that they wiped his name out of the historical record for over 400 years, simply referring to him as David's son. Why? Because if you want someone to forget about somebody, don't say their name. This is why if you've ever been through a divorce, you never call your ex by their name. You call them by my ex or the children's father. That's how that works. And they said, hey, it's David's son's fault that we are where we are. David's son made a mistake, and that's why we are where we are. Enter the prophets. The prophets now show up in Babylon talking to these Israelites who are now slaves. And they say things like, take heart, for God will bring a new son of David who will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus is called a lot of things. Jesus Christ, Jesus our Savior, Rabbi Jesus, Jesus our carpenter, Jesus son of Joseph. But the poor and the afflicted had one name for Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, are you the new son of David that the prophets of old talked about? What that means, if you're the new son of David, that means you're here for the poor. Newsflash, I'm poor, which means you're here for me. Now, I thought that was, yeah, it's not bad. So these children of Israel are enslaved in Babylon, and they blame Solomon. It's David's son's fault. And when you're enslaved, what do you do to, co to comfort yourself? You write songs, poems, plays, because suffering is hard to explain in linear terms. So they wrote these Proverbs. And one of the ones that got around in song was, it's my father that ate sour grapes, and now my teeth are set on edge. Somebody else made a mistake, and that's why I am where I am. Now, if you lost me in all of that, right? If you're like, what, what, what? Come back now. Ready? If, if, if I lost you in all that, come back now. Let me explain this in one sentence, okay? Here's what's happening in this passage. The current generation is blaming the previous generation for why they are the way they are. Because that's not relevant at all, is it? We've never heard that. I've been pastoring for years. I'm a counselor. Your pastor has been pastoring longer than me. There's some folks here that have been pastoring longer than both of us, right? And we love pastoring. There's, there's a few things we don't like about it, like discussing boring, random verses from Leviticus that you can't, can't figure out how to apply. We don't, we don't like to talk about that stuff, right? The other thing we don't really like is to confront behavior. It's terrible. We don't like to do that. Occasionally, you have to do it. You have to confront somebody on their horrible behavior. And the number of times that it sounds something like this, Sir, cut it out, man. You got to get your stuff together, bro. You're fixing to lose everything that's important to you. Come on, man. Pull it together. And the guy goes, I know. I know. But if you knew what my dad was like, you would know why I am the way I am. Or ma'am, seriously, you got to cut it out. You're fixing to lose everything that's important to you. You got to get it together. We don't want to be the one to tell you this, but you're critical, cantankerous, possessive, jealous, and horrible. Your, your, your husband is secretly praying for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. And she says, I know, I know. But if you knew what my mom was like, you would know why I am the way I am. My mom was critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and horrible. So I'm critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and horrible. My dad was a drunk, so I'm a drunk. My dad's an abuser, 
so I'm an abuser. My dad's a philanderer, so I'm a philanderer. My father ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. My mom ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. And here's the problem with that. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. You sit with me for 45 minutes and tell me the truth, I can tell you why you are the way you are. It's the easiest part of the job. Ray Charles can tell you why you are the way you are. He could see it, okay? If you don't, some people go, what, what? He's blind, okay? Yeah, I get it. Your mom's horrible. If only half of what you're telling me about your mother's true, I get it. She was horrible. And I get it. That's why you're horrible. She's horrible. You're horrible. Nailed it, right? Your dad, horrible. That's why you're horrible. I get it. You nailed it. The reason you are horrible is because your parents were horrible. I get it. Here's the problem. You're 40. <laughs> right? And at what point do you draw a line in the sand that says, just because my father ate sour grapes doesn't mean my teeth have to be set on edge. Just because my mom was a certain way doesn't mean I have to be a certain way. My parents' darkness does not have to be continued on in perpetuity. I could choose a different path. Listen, why you are the way you are is not your parents' fault unless you're eight. If you're eight, totally their fault. If you're 28, it's you. And it's not empowering to blame somebody else for why you are the way you are. This is what's happening in this passage. Ezekiel's saying, in no way is it empowering to you to blame the previous generation for why you are the way you are. The most empowering stance you could possibly ever take is to draw a line in the sand and says, yes, those people had darkness. Those people had disrepair. Those people had shame. But I don't have to carry that forward. Just because somebody else ate sour grapes doesn't mean I have to eat sour grapes and my teeth are set on edge. Oh, yeah, my parents were bad with money, so I'm bad with money. My parents were abusive, so I'm abusive. My parents were lazy, and that's why I don't get up before 10. My father ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. God says, I don't want to ever hear that out of your mouth again. And it's not because I don't love you. It's because I do. That is totally disempowering. Say, Shane, you understand, man. You understand. My family had issues. Really? Let me ask you a question about your family. Did your family have a man and a woman trying to live together? Then there's going to be issues. Why? Because marriage is hard and ridiculous and a blessing and complex. Marriage is so complex, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Depends on who you read. Solomon's like, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Rock. What's the Bible say about marriage? It depends. Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it. A lot. Right? Paul's like, well, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. <laughs> Why? Because even if you marry someone who's basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, right? Now, if you marry sort of a lunatic, what do you want me to do, right? But you marry a basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy person, there's still going to be issues because of preference. Men and women prefer different things. And I mean at a very base level, like smells. 
Women prefer sweet-smelling things. Perfume, candles, flowers. You buy a woman a bouquet of flowers, every woman in here, she's going to do one thing first. She's going to sniff it, right? You hand a man a bouquet of flowers, all he smells is 70 bucks. That's what that costs. We don't care about that. You go to Rabina Town Center, there's a shop there. I don't know how you do this. There's a shop there that makes a full-time living selling candles. And you can go in the middle of the day, and there'll always be two women in there smelling wax. Listen, two women can go to a candle shop and sniff wax for an hour and call that fun. You'll never see two men doing that. You imagine walking by a candle shop, there's two guys in there. Hey, Billy, check that out, man. That's that new white lilac scent, man. That is something. No way! No way! Why? Because men prefer stinky things. There's nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. That's hilarious. Women find that disgusting. They're supposed to live together, right? Men love stinky stuff. It's in our blood. You ain't going to change that. Don't try to get that out of a man. It's in our DNA. It's in our blood. We love stinky stuff. You're in a, if you're in a backyard rugby match and you're like bloody, sweaty, nasty, disgusting, you get out of there and you shower quickly because you've got a meeting. And you take your bloody, sweaty, nasty rugby clothes you put them in a plastic bag, you tie it up and put it in the boot of your car. Three months later, you go to the boot of your car and you see that bag. Every man knows what has to happen. It's in us. If there's a bag with known stinky things in the bag, every man in here knows what must happen. We have to open that bag, and we have to smell it. Woo! Wow! Woo! And here's the thing. It's the code of the man. If three of my mates are standing around, and there's a known stinky thing, they all owe me a courtesy sniff of my stinky thing. And you'll have grown men passing around a bag. Everybody knows it stinks, and they can't help it. They're like, oh, yeah, oh, man, Jim, that's a good one. Woo, that's a good one. And now I owe them a courtesy sniff of their stinky thing. This is why if you're ever caught in traffic on the Gold Coast, and there's four guys stuck in traffic at a red light, and three of them have their head out the window, and the fourth guy's in the back seat laughing, <laughs> he just cashed in on his courtesy sniff. Your family had issues? Of course they had issues. Say, Shane, you understand, man. You understand, my dad had issues. Really? Your dad had issues? Everybody's dad has issues. My dad has issues. And let me be clear about this. My dad's a good dude, man. My dad's a great guy, actually. It is 4 o'clock in the morning where he lives. In 30 minutes, he will be up praying for me. 4.30 yesterday, he was praying for this meeting. Right? No matter where I am, 4.30 in the morning, my dad's up praying for me. And he doesn't tell me every time. I just know that's what he does. My dad's one of these people that gets up really early, right? He's, he's like an old military vet. He just gets up. He gets up, he gets up early. Like when I, when I was a kid, he got up at 6. Junior high was 5.30. By high school, it was 5. By university, it was 4.30. Now he gets up at 4.15 to pray at 4.30. I was talking to him the other day. He said, Shane, you know what they were doing? They were starting to get up at 4 to pray at 4.15. I was like, my God, Dad, if you live 10 more years, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. This is ridiculous. My dad's a good dude. He's got issues. Like, one of his issues, he loved to scare us. He thought it was hilarious. And I'm not talking about a mild boo. I'm talking about terrorize six-year-olds. Like, I've never, been a, I've never been a morning person. I've always been a night owl. 
I can get a lot of work done at night. But I can't really, in the morning, early in the morning, I just can't, I can't stand it. So I, I've never been able to get up too good. So I used to have this bad habit. I'd get up in the morning and I'd sit on the side of the bed and fall back asleep. I, I was six. Let me be clear about this. Six, right? My father decided, I'm going to break him of this. And here's his idea. Because he was up before everybody else, he hid under my bed. Now, he, he, he didn't tell my mom. My mom would never have allowed that. So he's under my bed just waiting for me to get up. So I get up, and I sit on the side of the bed. I'm just about to fall back asleep. Just as I was about to fall back asleep, my, my dad reaches out and grabs my feet. <laughs> I thought the boogeyman lived under there anyway. Your dad has issues. Everybody's dad has issues. My dad liked to embarrass us. I thought it was hilarious. One time he was taking me to church for junior high Bible camp. Something we do in America. Sort of weird. We get Bible camp, right? So you're 13 years old. And dad's pulling up to the church and there's two American-sized yellow school buses. 57 passengers apiece. What could go wrong? You know? My dad pulls up and says, hey buddy, want you know I love you? I believe in you. I'm going to pray for you every day that God's going to do something in your life at camp. I'm like, thanks, Dad. Love you too. See you later. He goes, hang on. Where's my kiss? I was like, Dad, honest to God, not here. Like a hundred of my friends are here. He said, I get it. I get it. That's fine. Go ahead. So I get out the car, hand the bags to the bus driver. They put the bags under the bus. I get on the bus. I'm in the next to last row. We're fixing to go. Fixing to go. To my horror... I look up, and my father had decided to get on the bus. It was 43 degrees Celsius, 95% humidity. He had his shorts pulled up to here. He had socks pulled up to his knee. And he got on the bus with a limp. And he said to everybody, the, the bus had a microphone. He said, excuse me, everybody. This bus isn't leaving. Until my Shaney Wayne, he comes up here and gives me a kiss. The whole bus starts shedding. Kiss him, kiss him. Your dad had issues. Everybody's family has issues. That's not the question. The question is whether or not we're doomed to perpetuate those issues into eternity, or can we be wise enough to go, this part of my family belongs in life and light, and this part of my family belongs to death and darkness, and I'm going to leave death and darkness behind and choose life and light. That's what matters. And here's the wrong question. This is the question that will ruin us. Is it normal? That's a, that's a stupid question. Because normal is a function by which the way you grew up before the age of eight. What you think and what I think is normal is ground into us by the age of eight. And it's a function by which we saw our parents operate. So some people, normal is yelling. Some people, normal is calm. Some people, normal is drunk. Some people, normal is sober. Some people, normal is pure. Some people, normal is promiscuous. What's normal is not the question. What is the question is, does that belong to death or life? And if it belongs to death, we've got to leave it behind. If it belongs to life, that's what needs to be perpetuated forward. And everybody, everybody realize, everybody does have that moment in life where you go have like a, like you're like 10 and you have a slumber party. 
um, a friend invites you to sleep over, and you're from a calm family, and they're like yelling at dinner. And you're like, man, these people are weird, right? But then they come to your house, and they're like, man, these people are weird, right? Like, we've all had that moment where we realize the way we grew up isn't the way everybody else did, right? The question isn't what is normal. The question is what is death and what is life. And we need to eradicate death and perpetuate life. And this is what Ezekiel's getting out here. This is the very next verse. This is verse 4. Check this out. For every living soul belongs to me. The Father as well as the Son, both, along, both alike belong to me. But the one who sins is the one who will die. Every living soul. See, there were two beliefs in Ezekiel's day that do not exist anymore. But it, it matters because it did then. The first belief was that God was for certain people and against others. Now, we would never think that. But back then, that's what they thought. We've had an encounter with the risen Christ, and we realized that God's love is for all people. They didn't really realize that. They thought God was for certain people and against other people. The second thing they thought was, and this is kind of crazy, we, we would never think this, but they did. They thought it was possible for God to still be punishing a grandson for the sins of his grandfather, even though the grandfather had been dead 50 years. So they thought you could look at someone's life being ruined, and even though he didn't do anything, it's God still punishing him for his grandfather. That's what they thought. Ezekiel's going, actually, I'm telling you God's nicer than that. God is not for certain people and against others. Every living soul belongs to God. But if someone's life's going into disrepair, it's not God punishing them for somebody else's sin. It's their own thing that's causing the problem. And here's what he does. It's a... I don't know, 17 verse long example that I won't read. I'll just explain it. But trust me, I'll do it justice. Ezekiel says, suppose a righteous man gives birth to a wicked son. And then that wicked son gives birth to a righteous grandson. So if you're following me, righteous grandfather, wicked father, righteous son. And then he just asks one question. Who gets rewarded for who, and who gets punished for who? Does the son inherit the, wicked, the, the, the righteousness of his grandfather or the wickedness of his father? And does the wicked father get the righteousness of the grandfather, or does the righteous grandfather get paid for by the wickedness? Which one pays for what? And he poked the whole hole in the argument that way. And he says the good news is better than that. The good news is that every generation can stand on their own two feet before God. And the ones that choose life get life. The ones that choose death get death. But it's not the consequences of God actively punishing somebody for, somebody for, for something that somebody's been dead 50 years about. And he says this is how this works. And you understand in those days that would have been unbelievably liberating to a group of people who thought, Maybe I'm suffering because of the sins of my grandfather. To hear, actually, if you wake up and you draw a line in the sand and you choose life, there's life waiting for you. This is how he concludes it, which is going to be my answer to what's happening in us right now because that's my best effort at explaining what happened. I don't, that's about as good as I could do with that. But now let's ask what's happening in us right now and see where Ezekiel takes it. Watch what he says. Next slide. He will not die for his father's sin. He will live. He's talking about the righteous grandson, right? But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst the people. 
Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Now, why would they be asking that? Because that's what they were taught their whole life. The son is punished by God because of the father, right? And so Ezekiel's saying something new, and the people are going, hang on, come at me again. Why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Since the son has done what is just and right, has been careful to keep my decrees, he will surely live and not die. Keep going. The soul of sins is the one that will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. There should be a lot of, oh, thank God, in this room for that one. The soul who sins is the one. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him. The wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from his sins, he's committed and keeps my decrees and does what is just and right, he'll live and not die. In other words, if you're on the road to death, you have one choice. Turn around to life. That no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're one choice from turning around and beginning to live in life, light, and increase. Ezekiel, this is 3,000 years old, and he's saying, you are never too far down the road of death to turn your life around. Never, ever, ever. You're never too far removed. Are you sick and tired of your life being in disrepair? Are you ready to get your, your life together? And if this is what you need to do. You need to simply turn around and change roads, right? But then watch what he does. This is such wisdom. Watch this. None of the offenses he's committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he's done, he'll live and not die. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they, in other words, I'm I'm not a God who sits above the story going, man, these people about to ruin their life. This is going to be awesome. Boy, I told them. No, no. The God revealed in Christ and the God revealed in Scripture is like, hey, if you're on the road to death, he's going, get off the road, change lanes, take the next exit. Dude, so I take no pleasure in someone ruining their life. I love it when they turn around and live. Keep going. But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness to commit sin and does the same detestable things a wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he's done will be remembered. Because of his unfaithfulness, he's guilty. And because of the sins he's committed, he'll die. In other words, if you're on the road to death, you have one choice. Turn around. But this is such wisdom. Man, especially anybody. But if you're a young person in here, this is such wisdom. That good decisions do not work like savings accounts. Like, if you're on the road to life and you make 30 years of good decisions... You don't then get 30 years of horrible decisions before you get back to zero. Actually, you can make 30 years of good decisions and make one really bad mistake and the whole thing can turn on you. Essentially, he says, if you're on the road to death, turn around. But if you're on the road to life, keep going every single day. Make the best choice to choose light and life instead of death and darkness, right? Keep going. Yet you say the way of the Lord's not just? I mean, listen, when you're, give some, when you're giving a group of people who's been taught one thing their whole life, a new thought, sometimes they push back, even if you, what you're saying makes more sense. So there was a group of people who go, we, this doesn't sound fair to us. Watch what Ezekiel says. The way of the Lord's not just? Here, O Israel, is it my way that's unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Here's your way, that God is punishing people for the sins of their great-grandfathers. Does that sound fair? Or is this more fair? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he'll die. Because of the sin he's committed, he'll die. 
But if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, he's committed, it does what is just and right, he'll save his life. How's that unfair? Every generation can stand on their own two feet before God and not be punished for the previous generation's mistake, and they could choose life and light instead of death and darkness. And if you choose life, you get life. You choose death, you get death. It's on you. Because he considers his offenses he's committed and turns away from them, he will live and not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way the Lord's not just. In other words, who amongst you saying that's not fair? Is it, is it my ways or, or, or yours that are the unjust one? Keep going. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, but each according to his own ways. Can you imagine the sigh of relief on that? Oh, God's not holding the sins of my grandfather against me? Wow. Repent. That just means turn around. Turn away from all your offenses and sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to read that twice because it's so important. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn around and live. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the information in this passage? What's happening in us right now because of it? Let me put some language on this. Next slide. All of us are shaped by our history and heritage. So I stop and I'm going to talk very, I know I spoke really fast. I did that on purpose so you'll pay attention. But now I'm going to speak slow because this matters. Every person in here was shaped by their family of origin. And let me be clear. What you think is normal is not your fault. It's not. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the situation you were in. And some of us in this room had awesome parents who normalized life and light. And if that's your parents, you should write them a text or an email or a phone call or something thanking them for letting you start on third base to use a baseball metaphor. Everybody was shaped by their history and heritage. And let me be clear. If you had horrible parents, that's not your fault. You bear no responsibility to that. And if you had awesome parents, that's also not to your credit. You didn't deserve that either. We were all shaped by our history and heritage. What we think is normal is what we think is normal. But we must all take responsibility and turn around and live. What does that mean? It means we need to take an audit. What's in my family habits that belongs to death? And what's in my family habits that belongs to life? Not what is normal. What is death and what is life? And choose to eradicate the death and perpetuate the life. And let me stop and make this point because here's the thing. In a room this size, it is statistically improbable that there's not at least one of you thinking this. So I, I, I want to address it because it's really important. There'd be one of you going, good one, Shane. This is why I never come to church on Mother's Day or Father's Day. Because somebody I've never met is going to stand on a stage and use the Bible to tell me to honor my father and my mother. But here's the thing. You just told 
the, the most horrible things you could tell about your father. You just stood on a stage and you told your best stories of the terrible things he did to you. And it was hilarious. But if I said what my dad did to me, not hilarious. If I told you what my mom did to me, not funny. As a matter of fact, I probably wouldn't be allowed to share it because it would be too much for some people. And this is why I never come to church on Mother's Day or Father's Day because somebody I've never met is going to make me feel bad about not honoring my father and my mother. But if you knew what they did to me, you wouldn't be asking me to honor them. Now, is that a good question or a bad question? That's a really good question. And if you'll give me three minutes, I think I can help you with that, okay? First of all, I am so sorry for whatever it was that happened to you. That's not your fault. You didn't deserve it. It was horrible. It is never good or right for adults to expose children to adult emotions, adult stresses. Like if you were seven and your dad and mom said, look, we're broke and it's sort of your fault and I don't know where we're going to eat. If you had to go to bed carrying adult motions, adult stress, and especially adult violence. If somebody's ten times your size beating the crap out of you, that is not okay. And I'm very sorry for whatever happened. You should have never had to deal with that. But the hope for your life is that you honor your father and mother. And let me explain. One, you don't honor people because they're honorable. You honor people because you're honorable. That's first. Second, words matter less than how we picture words functioning. In our world, honor means saying something to somebody. Not in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, honor has almost nothing to do with what you say to someone and almost everything to do with how you act away from them. And you know that to be true. Like, let me give you an example. You have a great pastor here, okay? And you should honor him, correct? And if you said, Pastor, I just want you and Trish to know we honor you. That would bless his heart. That's called encouragement. And that would be great. But what's more honoring to your pastor is not what you say to him. It's how you act and behave away from him. It's, it's, it's living out there according to the values of Jesus Christ expressed in here. Same thing, if you're a parent, you totally get this. If your 16-year-old said to you, Mom, Dad, I honor you. Well, that would bless your heart, and you should honor them. But what's more honoring is not what you say to someone. It's knowing when you're with your friends at Surfer's Paradise at 10 o'clock at night that you're living in a way out there that honors the values of your family away from them. Now, so when the scriptures say honor your father and mother, it has almost nothing to do with what you say to them. It has everything to do with how you act away from them. How you perpetuate life and light to the next generation, not how you respond to the previous one. This is why. The key to your life is to honor your father and mother. What does that mean? It means to audit the death that was in your family habits and choose to eradicate that. And audit the life. If there was anything in there that was life, choose to perpetuate that. My dad's prayer discipline should be perpetuated. My dad's work ethic should be perpetuated. 
My dad's generosity should be perpetuated. It belongs to life. My dad's love for scaring six-year-olds needs to die with him. And the same will be true for all of our families. Because here's the thing. When you choose to honor and you perpetuate life, two or three generations down the road, people just assume the whole family tree was awesome. Like, I travel the world under normal circumstances. And I get asked this all the time. Shane, wow, you must come from a long line of educated preachers. Uh, no. All four of my great-grandparents were illiterate. They couldn't read. All four. My great-grandfather was a member of a racist organization known as the Ku Klux Klan. My great-grandfather made his living moonshining. If you don't know what that is, that's running illegal liquor across state lines. My great-grandfather was an illiterate moonshining racist. So how do you get from illiterate moonshining racist to someone with three university degrees traveling the world talking about the compassion of Christ for all people? How do you get from there to there? I'll tell you how. My mom and dad drew a line in the sand and said, uh-uh. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Our children will go to school. Our children will read books. And our children will not be racist because that's just stupid. And in one generation, they changed the whole family tree. And now people all over the world assume my illiterate, moonshining, racist great-grandfather was a preacher? That's honor. What better way to honor him than to live like I do now? I'm so sorry for what happened to you. But the key to your life is to eradicate the death and perpetuate the life. And the Jewish people had a word for that. Honor. To honor your father and your mother. And here's what's so important to the story. When we choose to live in God's ways, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. He says, get rid of all these things and get a new heart and a new spirit. This is so important. There's a way to preach this. And there's a way that I've heard it said. And it goes like this. Have you ever seen somebody ruining their life? Like they're just, they act like a jerk all the time, right? It's somebody's kind hearted and said, oh, bless their heart. If they could just get healed, they'd, they'd act better. Boy, they need a lot of healing. Man, if they could just get healed in their heart, they wouldn't be such a jerk, right? If they could just get healed, they wouldn't be critical, cantankerous, jealous, and horrible. They could just get healed. They, they need a lot of heart healing before they can act better. And the idea is, if you get healed in your heart, you can act better. Okay, and I'm all for that, except for, in this instance, Ezekiel takes the exact opposite place. And he says, why would you wait to get healed? Just choose to behave better. Because here's the truth. Some things you can't be healed from. Listen to me. Some things you cannot be healed from. Some divorces are so horrible. You want to be healed? You're going to wait till you're healed from that? 
some abuses are so personal, you're going to wait till you're healed from that? No. And that's the beauty of Ezekiel's point. Ezekiel makes a point, God is not interested in healing your heart. God is interested in giving you a brand new one. Why would you walk around with a mended up heart when there's a heart transplant waiting on you? And here's what he says. If you'll by faith choose to live in life, a new heart and a new spirit is wrapped up in that. Now I want to pray for you now. And I want to pray for us to have the courage to see things different. The irresistible urge to respond to what we see. That we put this word that we um, examine tonight into practice. Because words that aren't put into practice, they don't mean anything. It's the words we put into practice that matter. So I want us to take a second and be quiet. And I want us to ask this question. If you're sitting next to your spouse, maybe you could take them by the hand. And you could pray something like this. Holy Spirit, is there anything that we're allowing in our family that belongs to death? And we're only doing it because that's what we were taught. Lord, would you reveal to us any place that is perpetuating death in our family habits? I know we were taught to yell to get our way, but that's death. I know we were taught greed, but that's death. Is there anything? Because here's the thing. A night like tonight, you could change your family tree forever. And if you don't, you'll leave it to your children. And one day you'll think back on tonight and wish you did. Wish you acted. I want you to name that thing and make a commitment together. We will choose life and eradicate death. We will choose life and eradicate death. Lord, would you give us that unction of the Holy Spirit to act, perpetuate life, eradicate death, and set us free. And for the people in here who've had a particularly traumatic upbringing. I pray that you would give all of us the courage to live in life and light and to honor. And you would honor your promise to give us a new heart and a new spirit. Would you minister to everybody who's been abused and traumatized and hurt. Give us the strength to live different. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for being with you all day. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross works better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller. May we live according to the yoke of our rabbi, Jesus. Not to just believe in Jesus, but to see the world how Jesus saw the world. May we live in a way of love where we treat people as they are worth, not as they deserve. Where we fulfill scripture and not just be right about one verse. And when we see needs and we know we can meet the need, may we open our splackness all over that need. And may we as a group of people, may we take responsibility for our life and resist the temptation to blame somebody else for why we are with the way we are. And may we live on a higher plane than that and empower our life. And may it never be said from anybody in here ever again that my father ate sour grapes and that's why my teeth are set on edge. May we live more profoundly than that. Thanks so much, guys. Grace and peace. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for new messages weekly. You can keep updated on what's happening in the life of King's Church by following us on social media at King's Church GC. Be blessed.